If you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Deuteronomy, chapter 4. You can find Deuteronomy if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 148, but we're actually going to be on page 149. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 24. So that's Deuteronomy, chapter 4, starting verse 15 and reading through verse 24. We were made... To be worshipers. This is an indisputable fact, which is shown out, demonstrated in the way that we live each and every day in pursuit of satisfaction. There is this innate attraction within each and every one of us to something that is greater than ourselves. This a natural pursuit, really, of satisfaction in our souls that compels us to seek that outside of ourselves. As Blaise Pascal puts it, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. We pursue what we value. We, we do it without even thinking about it. It's, it's natural to us. After all, the Bible explains to us that we were made by God to love and to seek after him. The problem is that the human heart has been corrupted by sin so that we no longer are prone to love God or to seek after him or to worship him. In fact, we run the other way. We find ourselves attracted to and living in pursuit of things that were never meant to satisfy and never been meant to be the objects of our worship. Ever since the fall, mankind has been living in reverse, treasuring the creature over the creator, seeking to satisfy eternal desires with temporary pleasures. And while our hearts were made by God to drink the pleasure that flows from the fountain of knowing him, the corruption of sin makes it so that we are far more willing to entrust ourselves to things that we can see, taste, touch, test, measure, and even manipulate and control. We find it very difficult to trust in a God who we cannot see. So our hearts are given to idolatry. It's, it's in our DNA. But the God who is, the God of glory, who made us and made everything, who rules and reigns as the sovereign king of the universe, cannot be contained. He cannot be limited, and he will not share his glory with another. So his command to us is that we must leave those lesser things and fill ourselves with him and with him alone. This is the focus of our passage this morning. In this introduction to the law, Moses has already outlined two big commands to us about how to live in a right relationship with God. He has instructed us to cling to, to, to live by the word of God, and he has also instructed us to cling to the work of God, to know him both through his word and through experience. In our passage this morning, Moses gives a third command, a command to keep a careful watch on our souls by keeping ourselves from idols so that we may devote ourselves to the worship of this invisible God. 
And that is really going to be the focus of our time this morning. So if you would, please stand with me as I read our passage, Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting with verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Moses says, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware! lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven... You may be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, The Lord was angry with me because of you and swore, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to him for it. Please be seated. Well, the main idea of this passage is quite simple. But it is profound and it is more difficult than we might think. And that is simply this. Keep yourselves from idols you take one lesson from this passage, it is simply this. Keep yourselves from idols. Now, as I say that, I realize that there's a real opportunity for for some of you, maybe even most of you, as you're sitting there thinking, man, this is a message for somebody else. And maybe that's because when you hear Moses talk about idols, you can't help but think about Indiana Jones running through the jungle with some golden figurine. And that's just never been something you've struggled with. But I hope to challenge that caricature this morning to show you that idolatry is a bigger issue than just physical images. The issue of idolatry is primarily an issue of the heart, and it's an issue that affects us whether we realize or want to admit it or not. We're actually going to be looking for a little bit, uh, we're going to be focusing on the issue of idolatry for a number of weeks here. Uh, And that's because it's such a serious issue, but we're kind of making our first foray into it this morning. It is tempting, as we read this passage, uh, to read it simply as Moses giving us a prohibition, something he's telling us, don't do this. Um, But as we actually look at verse 15 and, and think about it, which is where the command is, we realize that Moses has actually stated this in the positive He does not just say, don't do this, but rather he says, therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Watch to make sure you worship God the right way, in a way that reflects the reality of who he is. 
All of the prohibitions that we do see in this particular passage are aimed at this positive command, at this goal, to worship God the right way. And there are three reasons that we can see why we're called to take such care to guard ourselves from falling into the trap of idols. And, and that's what I want to explore with you this morning in our three points. We must guard ourselves from idols because God is transcendent, meaning he is above us. Second, we must guard ourselves from idols because God is near to us. He has created us to have a real relationship with himself. And finally, we must, we must guard ourselves from idols because God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another and he will not allow you to be fully satisfied in anyone else either. So, let's look this morning at these three reasons why we need to guard ourselves from idols. First, we need to guard ourselves from idols because we serve a God who is high and lifted up. A God who is holy. A God who is transcendent. Carelessness is costly. Carelessness is costly. When David was king in Israel, he arranged for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought out of the house of Abinadab before the people to Jerusalem. The Ark was supposed to be carried by Levitical priests, but they decided to put it on a cart anyway. It must have been more convenient. Well, everyone was extremely excited. When Saul had been king, Israel had kind of forgotten about the Ark, but now the Ark was coming home and the people were glad everyone turned out they were celebrating before the lord we're told with all their might i mean this it was a party it was a parade this must have been an amazing day but then things took an ugly turn we're told that as the oxen who were pulling the cart made their way down the road they stumbled maybe they hit a pothole must have been something like our roads in wisconsin i don't know but the ark started to fall and one of the drivers, a man named Uzzah, saw that the ark was in danger of falling. And so he took his hand and he placed it on the ark to hold it steady. That was a careless move. And we're told that in that moment, the anger of the Lord was stirred up against him and he struck Uzzah down. Now, I don't doubt that Uzzah had good intentions, but that doesn't change the fact that in touching the ark of God, he had acted presumptuously. He had underestimated the holiness of God and his own sin, and it cost him his life. Now, Uzzah's death shocked the nation, really put a damper on the situation. Uh, the ark didn't make it to Jerusalem that day. In fact, the whole event filled David with fear. He was afraid to bring it into the city. And so we're told that it was kept outside in the house of Obed-Edom, the, Git the Gittite. And there it remained until it was brought in to be in the temple. God is a God who is worthy of our deepest affection and our greatest reverence. He is a God who is to be feared. We must not take his holiness lightly. That's what we learn from the life of the short life of Uzzah. Although God beckons us to come into his presence, to know him, to delight ourselves in him, he also warns us that we must come before him in a right way, in the way that he has designed. As I have said many times, quoting C.S. Lewis, God is not safe 
but he is good. So we cannot afford to become careless in our relationship with God. This is the key command of our passage. In verse 15, Moses says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. And then in verse 16, he says, Watch yourself, beware, lest you, lest you act corruptly. God's holiness is something that we have to take seriously. His holiness is what killed Uzzah. His holiness is why when, when God had appeared to the people at Horeb in the fire on the mountain, he also veiled that fire in smoke and cloud and gloom. Otherwise, the people would have most certainly have been consumed. That's not something that should make us afraid from God so that we should shy away from him. But it is something that should make us take our worship and our relationship with him very seriously. That means that we must come carefully before God in the way that is consistent with his holiness, in, in the way he has appointed for us to come before him. And that really is the heart of Moses' instruction here. Our worship is supposed to reflect the reality of who God is. And so Moses warns us to flee from anything that would reduce God to anything less than he truly is. He warns Israel that they must not act corruptly, specifically by making any carved image for themselves in any form or any likeness to try and represent God to their senses. Now, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, uh, which Moses t is, talks about uh, in verse 13, you'll recognize that this is actually covered in the second command. And it will come up again as we make our way through the book of Deuteronomy. And that command was this. In Exodus 20, starting in verse 4 through, through 6, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this command, this, this command not to make any sort of image of carved image of any likeness to represent God, this was a radical cultural departure for Israel from everything that they had ever known, from everything that the nations around them were doing. Egypt, which they had just come out of, was filled with all sorts of representations of different gods and goddesses that, that were mostly represented by, by different animals. Now the Greeks to the north, they were slightly more refined. All of their gods actually looked like humans, but they were really no different. Meanwhile, Israel is headed to a land where the people worshipped Baal and Asherah and Molech and the sun and the moon and the stars. God had set Israel apart in particular, and their worship reflected that. While the other nations of the earth pursued false gods and false ways, the Lord had called Israel to himself. He had delivered them out, had appeared to them, and had called them to know him in his truth. While they had not seen God with their eyes, they had clearly seen the effect of his presence on the holy mountain as they saw the holy fire that blazed upon it and the smoke that surrounded it. They had heard his voice, and they had been called to hold fast to his word. 
That's the difference between God and the gods of the nations. He is the one true God. He is holy. He is transcendent above us. He cannot be contained or controlled or manipulated. And that's the issue here. When Moses is saying, don't make a carved image, don't try and represent God with created things, he knows that if they had tried to do that, they would have always failed to measure up to the reality of who God is. That's why Moses is warning them to be so careful about this trap. Everyone else around them is doing this. But no one else serves the Lord, the true God. They were wrapped up in a lie. And Moses knew that lie was going to be attractive to the nation of Israel. So he's warning them. Moses knew Israel's history. He knew that this was going to be a real challenge for them in the future. In fact, if we think about Israel's experience at Horeb, you may remember, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, that not even 40 days after the Lord spoke to the people and delivered his commandments to them, they made a golden calf. Moses had gone up the mountain to meet with God to receive the rest of the law, and while he was there, the people decided they needed a representation of God to go before them. They wanted something tangible, something they could touch. They told Aaron, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we, we don't know what's become of him. And we're told about how Aaron, who was afraid of the people, listened to them and played right along in their story. He fashioned a golden calf for them and presented it to the people. And they said, "Thee," and they, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What a, what a slap in the face of God. It hasn't been 40 days at that point. It is not an accident that Moses, after reminding the nation of Israel about how God had met with them, how they had heard his voice at Horeb, that he should immediately turn and give them this particular warning. He's warning the people not to fall into the same trap that their parents fell into by trying to reduce God down to something that could be contained, something that could be touched and felt and manipulated. In the Psalms, we are told that the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. And all they do, don't they? I love going out of these crisp fall nights and looking up at the stars or looking at the moon. It's amazing. What a world we live in. But even as creation declares God's glory to us, we must also understand that God's glory is above that creation. It cannot be reduced down to a created thing. When God met with Israel and spoke to them, he didn't appear in any form to them, but spoke to them out of the midst of the fire. He did that for a reason. He was communicating to them in a way that reinforced to them, you can't contain me. That is why God gives this prohibition not to make any sort of graven image to represent him. And that is why Moses gives us this warning. Because all too often we want to try and tame God down, to contain him, to fashion him after our likeness when we were made and fashioned after his. Idolatry is a bigger issue than we may be prone to think that it is. I would be extremely surprised to find out that anyone in this room had ever been tempted to go and worship a golden calf. 
But we must be on our guard. Because like the Israelites who, who were constantly tempted with idolatry, we are constantly tempted to think that we can contain God or limit Him. As John Calvin has famously observed, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We are masters of taking things that were meant to point us to the glory of God and serving those things as ultimate. Good things, but things that are not worthy of our greatest affections. We can fall into the trap that Moses was warning the people and by extension warning us in in two ways. We can commit and fall into idolatry either when we love and pursue those things that God has created for us in ways that only God is to be loved and pursued. Or we can tweak and twist our understanding of who God is to try to better fit Him into what we would prefer Him to be. This is a terribly dangerous thing to do because it means that we can come to a point where we can imagine we are on good terms with God when in reality we are only on good terms with a God of our own creation. Convinced that we must be saved because our God accepts us for who we are because He just looks, he looks just like us. As Tony Reiki has remarked, there is nothing more dangerous than religious confidence in a fake God of our own imagining. Martin Luther captured the idolatry of his own day well when he said, The wicked say and confess, I am a monk. I serve God with vow and ceremonies. Because of this, he will give me eternal life. But who tells you that thus that you that thus are worshiping the true God when he has not commanded these things? Therefore you have made up for yourself some God who wants these things, although there is no true God who requires this or wants to give eternal life because of this. What then are you worshiping except an idol of your own heart whom you think the righteousness of your own works pleases? Idolatry is a bigger issue than we may otherwise be tempted to think. Like pride, idolatry is a subtle enemy and it is pervasive. It is persistent like a weed that will not die. We have to, it keeps getting picked out and keeps coming back. God demands and requires that we come to him in the purity of who he is, not in whom we imagine him to be or wouldn't we would have him to be. He commands that we find our fulfillment rightfully in himself and in his son, in whom we know God and are reconciled to God and see God. Idols detract from the purity and the goodness of who God is. We must be careful to fight that impulse of our flesh to try and reduce God down to something that he is not. We must be careful to approach him through the means he has provided, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We must be careful to obey him in faith and to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that leads us to our second point. We've seen that we must keep ourselves from idols because God is greater than anything we could ever imagine for ourselves or create Him in. But we're also called to keep ourselves from idols because God is near to us. God has created us to have a real relationship with Himself. Though He is transcendent above us, He is also near to us. This is one of the great wonders of the glory of God. 
The thing that really set the nation of Israel apart from all the other nations that surrounded them was that they had a real relationship with a real God. God had set them apart. His rules and his commandments and the law were designed to show that. In verse 19, Moses uh, says something really interesting. He says that while God had let the nations around Israel go their way and worship all sorts of false gods, he had actually called and collected Israel out of the fire of their enslavement in Egypt, out of this iron furnace, he says, and brought them out, verse 20, to be a people of his own inheritance. That is something that is really, really amazing. Israel didn't earn this. God saved them out and used that rescue to make them a people for his own possession, a people who bore the mark of his own name. In Romans 1, we read about how in judgment, God gave people up to the desires of the flesh and the sin of their own hearts. Although God created people to worship him, we see that they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But God collected and called Israel out of that. He rescued them. He appointed them to be a light in a dark place, a place where the glory of God would be shown, where it would beckon people to come and to see and to savor the one true God who is. Those other nations God had appointed to be vessels for his wrath. But Israel, he had chosen to receive mercy. And so not only did God rescue them from enslavement to Egypt, he actually fulfilled his promise and brought them to a land which he had promised to give to their forefathers to bless them and to make them a blessing. So as we come to verses 21 and 22, we we actually hear Moses again referencing that while God had forbidden him to enter the land, he had appointed for them to enter in and receive that inheritance, to receive this promise, but not just to receive land and to live in it, to go their own way, but to dwell with God in the land of his appointing, to give them an inheritance, to bless them and provide for them in a land that was now their own where they lived and where they dwelled with him. It's pretty easy to see how idolatry removes glory from God because there's simply nothing in all of this creation that can measure up to who he is. But now Moses has gone out of his way to emphasize, to instruct the people to guard themselves from idols, particularly because of the way that God is near to his people. God brought Israel out of Egypt to have and to live in a real relationship with him. An idol can't speak. It can't hear. It's deaf. It's dumb. And it's impotent. Not the Lord. No, God is a God who speaks. God is a God who listens to the cries of his people. And God is a God who works on behalf of them. God is a God who is near to his people. An idol has to be picked up and moved, not the Lord. He is the one who carried Israel out of Egypt. He is the one who went before them in a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke in the day. He is the one who split the sea and defended them against every threat. 
He is the one who called them into a close relationship with himself, who called them by his own name and gave them instruction and rules, providing them to live in the way of life. As important as it is for us to realize that God is a God who is high and lifted up, it is equally important for us to marvel at the way he is mindful of us, of the way he is near to us. As David sings in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What a great question. When you fly in an airplane, you can't see people walking. God knows all things and he loves his people. So hear what David, the rest of what David has to say. Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God's, God's mindfulness of us should amaze us. It is a mystery that can only be explained by his majesty, his mercy, and his grace. God has designed us to know him. He's not wound up the world and thrown it into a room and walked away from it. He is distinct from it, but he is active in it. He created us in his image. And in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion against him, in spite of the way that we constantly are trying to fill ourselves with lesser things, he has loved us by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to make atonement for that sin, to make us righteous, to give us life, to bring us into his glorious presence, to actually dwell with him as his people to behold him with unveiled faces. What God is there like the Lord, who is so high above us, and yet who humbled himself to become like us, to take our sin from us, to reconcile us to himself, to create for himself a people for his own possession. Friends, the God who is, is so much better than any God we could ever conceive of in our own minds. Our hearts are tempted to find safety and security in the things that we can control. We want to have our fingers on them. And we don't have to use names like Zeus, Thor, or Baal. Moved by the desires of our flesh, we we find ourselves crying to the gods of money, acceptance, achievement, recognition, sexual pleasure, identity, and all sorts of other things to, to save us and to satisfy us, to assure us that we're safe. But they cannot, because only the transcendent God who is can do that. The reason that you and I must be careful then and on guard to keep our hearts, by the grace of God, from idols is because God has called us from our ignorance to know him and to love him and to have a real, true relationship with him who is the fountain of all life. As, as Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. 
the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The world is not a free-for-all where we may live as we please without consequence. A day is coming and is now here where the dwelling place of God will be with his people. He is a God who is transcendent and who is imminent, who is above our knowledge and understanding and yet who has made himself known to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is why we must fight against idolatry even though it so easily creeps into our hearts. Because there is only one way to be brought into this fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our third point, our third reason we must keep ourselves from idols. We must keep ourselves from idols because God is a jealous God. Verse 24, Moses warns the people not to take idolatry lightly. He says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, jealousy is not something that we typically think of as a virtue, but it is with God. And that is because there is nothing higher or greater than God is. There is nothing that comes close to being on the same level as God is. He is holy, holy, holy. He is set apart. Moses warns Israel about creating images and about falling into idols because nothing else can measure up to who God is, and because God has designed his people to find satisfaction in a real relationship with him. In verses 23 and verse 24, he brings up the fact that God had made a covenant with his people, a promise. And so he warns them not to give their affection to another God of their own making. God takes his glory seriously, and he had set Israel apart for that purpose to be their God and for them to be his people. He made a a binding promise with them. They were joined to God the way a husband and a wife are in marriage. He gave Israel his name to trade that for a false God. There is no higher betrayal than that. It would be adultery on a divine scale. The Lord is a jealous God, meaning he does not take his glory lightly. He will not stand by while his glory is given to another. And so Moses warns Israel that if they allow their hearts to wander from the Lord, who was the lover of their souls, to seek after other false gods, there would most certainly be consequences. God's jealousy, while it is a frightening thing to think about when we consider our own sin, should actually be a source of comfort for his people. He is a consuming fire who will defend and keep and protect his people from every threat. He does not abandon his people. He is also committed to purifying his people, to to root out those old desires and to shape and to fashion us to be holy as he is holy. Moses mentions God's jealousy here to remind us that there are consequences for disobedience. When we wander from God and try to satisfy ourselves in lesser things, we find ourselves put in positions of of pain. 
As we explore the rest of this book, Moses is going to flesh out a little bit more the fully the blessings and the, of God and the curse of sin. But even as he warns us, he also, we find that he's pointing us to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is merciful and he is full of forgiveness. In our struggle against sin and the idols that cling so tightly to us, it's God's faithfulness that gives us hope. While he is a holy and righteous God, he is also a merciful Savior. And our hope then is founded and rooted in the fact that he never breaks his promises. Even when we are faithless, even when Israel was faithless, he is and was faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that must give our hearts comfort. The Lord is a God who must be feared, but he is also a God to be trusted. Part of pursuing God is fleeing from anything that would get in, our, in the way of our relationship with him. If we allow our hearts to wander to other things, if we pursue God's good gifts instead of pursuing him, our relationship with him suffers. So I want to ask you this morning, is there something in your life that is getting in the way of your relationship with God? What is it? And it may be a good thing. What is it that's competing right now for your attention? Where do you retreat to when times get tough, when you need a break? What are you satisfying your heart with? Are those things enhancing your love for Christ? Or are they really distracting you from him. That's something to ponder this afternoon. Is there some secret thing that your heart is bound to that you don't want to admit to because then you might have to give it up that is holding you back from your pursuit of Christ? That's a hard question. We don't like giving those things up. They are dear to us like that golden calf was to Israel. But they will lead us to death. Friends, we cannot afford to be careless with our hearts or with our worship. Our God is too great to be replaced with lesser things. Our Savior is too beautiful for us to exchange His glory for the glory of lesser things. So may God give us grace, even now, to put to death any passion, any desire that falls short of His calling on our lives and let us keep ourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord, this morning you know that we are weak. In your word you tell us that you know that we are but dust and you love us still. Father, we want to cry to you in our weakness knowing that there are most certainly idols in our lives, in our hearts, which we need to be at war with. Things that we're not keen to part with. Father, I pray that you by your grace would convict us of the ways in which we have pursued those things, that we would be moved to confess them, to repent of them, and to pursue you with a whole heart, to run after you the way you have designed us to run, to be filled with the glory of who you are, and to be satisfied in no lesser thing. Father, we pray that you would root out in us anything that is unworthy of you. And we trust that as you do, 
as we trust in the promises of Christ, as we, as we behold your love displayed to us in the cross and in the empty tomb and at the throne where he rules and reigns, I pray that you would keep us and satisfy us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.